You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Is it possible that God is with us this morning? Amen. Is it good to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen. Well, as we find ourselves entering into Holy Week and looking forward to Easter, we begin to feel this sense of anticipation in ways I think that nature itself echoes the anticipation that we feel in this latter parts of our journey through Lent. Since uh, we started the Garden of Hope, I think I've been challenged to think about the changing of the seasons a little bit differently. It's funny, when you start growing food, you begin to see just how tied you are to the land, just how tied you are to the movement of the weather. As warmer air begins to blow in and the April rain waters the earth, we're starting to see trees and flowers bud. Things that were once lifeless and dull are beginning to turn green again with life and vitality. It's as if creation itself is giving way to this anticipation of the new creation that we'll be celebrating here next week in the resurrection. As we began this journey of Lent being reminded of our mortality, that from dust we came into dust we will return, we near the end of our journey being reminded that death does not have the final say that Christ is transformed, even death. Do you feel that anticipation this morning as we gather for worship? Do you sense that God is transforming, God is making things new, God is doing new things? If so, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. Well, it's in that spirit of anticipation that we turn our attention to the scripture reading this morning. As Jonathan mentioned last week throughout this season of Lent and through this sermon series, Transformed, We've been following the lectionary readings of the greater church. These lectionary readings have been following Jesus through his ministry and will ultimately lead us next week to the empty tomb. Should I have given a spoiler alert? I'm going to backtrack a little bit. If you don't know how the story ends, be sure uh, to come back next week for what is sure to be a, a plot twist. So we'll begin with our scripture readings this morning, and I think it'd be good to read them in their entirety because despite being written generations and generations apart, they're actually in conversation with one another. And I realize that this may be a lot of reading, but you all look up to it this morning. So we'll start with our psalm. This is Psalm 118. Uh, We're gonna be reading verses one to two and then skipping a few verses ahead and reading 19 to 29. And listen closely as we read this psalm because there are themes and there are direct quotes that we'll be hearing again in our gospel reading this morning. So this is Psalm 118, starting with verse one. It reads, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Skipping ahead to verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. These are themes and images that we'll be returning to later this morning, the gate and salvation. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, interesting. This is the Lord's doing, that he might be exalted 
even in the humiliation of rejection. Verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. Or in the Greek transliteration, Hosanna, save us. We beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you. Give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. We're gonna see a lot of these themes come back around in our gospel reading this morning, which comes to us by way of uh, Matthew 21, verses one to 11. This is Matthew's account of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But before we get into our gospel reading, I wanna help uh, maybe set the scene, set the context. Uh, To this point, the bulk of Jesus's ministry had primarily been throughout the region of Galilee. But if you remember, he had been to Jerusalem once before as a child. And the reason that Jerusalem is so important is because it's the capital city of Israel, the holy city, the place of the temple. Throughout the course of a year, Jews would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for different festivals to worship at the temple. And as we pick up in our story this morning, Jesus and his disciples are making the pilgrimage from the region of Galilee to the city of Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, but is also joined by all sorts of others who are making this journey, this pilgrimage together. So let's pick up here, reading Matthew 21, starting with verse one. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been written, what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So now Jesus hasn't yet arrived at the gates of Jerusalem, but he's surrounded by a group of travelers and we begin to feel this sense of anticipation. The crowd is beginning to buzz and to rumble about a Messiah. Verse nine, The crowds that went ahead and the crowds that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This should sound familiar, right? From the Psalm that we just read. Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So by the time that Jesus enters the gates, He's now amassed a huge crowd of travelers, presumably mostly fellow Galileans, and they're all crying, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And as this crowd descends upon Jerusalem, the entire city of Jerusalem is troubled by this thing that they're seeing. If you're a Jew making the pilgrimage to the holy city, 
and particularly a good Jew that knows the narrative of the scriptures, then you'd recognize this scene that's unfolding, this man that's been healing, teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and has now mounted the donkey for his entrance into the holy city. Well, it's all reminiscent of King David, the royal king that had once entered the holy city in the same manner, coming in peace and humility, mounted on a donkey. So as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, people are immediately thinking about David. They're thinking about the king. They're thinking about the Messiah. And they begin crying out the words of the psalmist, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. So these Galilean travelers identify Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the deliverer, and they cry out, save us, God, save us. When I read this passage, I wonder to myself, what are these people convinced that they need saving from? As this crowd has rightly identified the Christ, the King of the Jews, what is it that they think that he's come to do? I wonder if they might identify with those Israelites generations before them who were oppressed by the Egyptians. Well, so maybe they need saving from the oppressive state, from Rome. They look to this Messiah to deliver them from Rome in the same way that Yahweh had delivered them from Egypt all those years ago. Maybe they think he's come to start a revolution of sorts that would raise their own nation to conquer their foes as in the days of the ancient Jews that the son of David has come at this particular moment in history to make Israel great again. So it's with this sense of anticipation that the deliverer has ridden into the city, followed by this huge crowd with all of the eyes of Jerusalem on him. And what does he do first? He makes his way to the temple. And I can only imagine that the entirety of Jerusalem is on edge. What proclamation will he bring? How will the revolution begin? How is it that he will call the people of Israel to throw off the oppression of Rome? So Jesus marches up the steps, enters the courtyard, and begins vandalizing the tables of those that were price gouging these pilgrims on their temple sacrifices. He flips the tables of those that were selling doves. Well, now that's funny. What does this have to do with our deliverance? Well, so what does he do next? Maybe, maybe that was just a fluke. So the next morning he's out walking through the city and he sees a fig tree and seeing that it has produced no fruit, he curses it and it withers and dies. And he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. Huh, interesting. This thing whose sole purpose was to bear fruit was not doing the thing that it was supposed to do. So Jesus destroys it. What could this mean? And then I wonder if it begets, begins to set in. Oh dear, oh dear, I don't think Jesus has come to deliver us from Rome. It would seem as though he's not all that concerned with the politics game. It looks like Jesus has come for the religious people. 
to begin not a revolution of the state, but a reformation of the people of God, a reformation of the heart. The Messiah has not come to deliver the people from the evil power of Rome. The Messiah has come to save the people from themselves. And as we gather this morning, the religious people of our day, we ought to be mindful of our Hosanna. This morning as we cry out, God save us, we ought to be looking for the ways in which God might be trying to save us from ourselves. God is looking to reform, to transform his people. So what does it mean that the deliverer has come to us? What does it mean that the Messiah is bringing salvation to his people? And what does this kind of salvation look like? As Jesus spends the following days upsetting the status quo of the religious people in Jerusalem, we find that salvation comes by way of execution? I can't be right. And what's worse, the, ex the executioner isn't who you'd expect it to be. It's not the oppressor. It's not Rome. Rome is merely the instrument. The executioner is the religious people, the very ones that he's come to deliver, to reform, to transform. We're again taken back to the psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So finally, the religious people have had enough of Jesus and they hand him over to be crucified as an insurrectionist, one that is seeking to create revolt against Rome. And Jesus is condemned and his execution comes by way of a cross. If we take a moment to pause here and look back earlier in the ministry of Jesus, we remember this episode shortly after Jesus has assembled his disciples. He tells them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Well, now this is strange. How could it be that the deliverer, the Messiah, could somehow hope to gain anything by going to death? And what does our salvation have anything to do with following him there? This doesn't sound like deliverance. This sounds like expediting the inevitable. So it's interesting. It looks like salvation has something to do with following Jesus to the cross. And just hours before he's condemned by the state, Simon Peter so confidently de de declares, though all become deserters of you, I will never desert you. He says, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And yet after Jesus is beaten and made to carry his own cross to his own execution and can carry it himself no further, where are the disciples? They're nowhere to be found, including Simon Peter. In fact, it's particularly striking that a different Simon, Simon of Cyrene, is forced by the guards to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way. A very odd path, indeed, to deliverance. 
In a strange turn of events, all of the anticipation that carried the Messiah to the gates of the holy city has in a matter of days been turned on its head. Stranger still is that this path leads to the establishment of a very different kingdom. A kingdom that is established not through power, not through violence, not through wealth, not even through voting majority, but a kingdom that is established through humility, through self-giving, through self-emptying. The kind of humility that is submissive even to the will of the enemy. That's strange. Some might even say foolish. Some might say dangerous. The kind of humility that would seek to heal rather than conquer. The kind of humility that recognizes the strange paradox that death comes before life. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul says it this way. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." that we should pray to be made like Christ might actually be a prayer that causes some sense of anxiety. Because Paul points out that the God of creation, the one who has ordered reality, doesn't come to us looking to get his. He comes to us looking to serve. He comes to us entitled to nothing but the will of the Father. And this is the posture, this is the humility that we are being called to. In chorus with those ancient voices this morning, we cry out, Hosanna, God, save us. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sins. Save us from thinking that we can save ourselves through power, through wealth, through violence, through busyness. I can't help but think about that fig tree the one that Jesus cursed because it was fruitless. This fig tree being a representation of Israel, a tree that had produced no fruit. This morning, would we cry out for salvation from fruitlessness, for salvation from that selfishness and that mindlessness of having nothing interesting with which to bless the world? Jesus comes to us this morning shaking us religious people of the notion that we have God figured out. God loves moving in unexpected ways. It's almost like he can't help but transform everything that he touches. Even death itself is transformed when it's touched by God. Death becomes an avenue to life. In this final week of Lent, we're confronted with our death, with our own mortality. We're confronted with ourselves and our desires as we enter into Holy Week. We're beckoned by the Messiah to contemplate our lives. 
How is the humility of Christ leading us to die to ourselves? How might Christ be calling us to empty ourselves? We find that like Simon Peter, it's easy to say, I'll never desert you. I'll not deny you. But this week we're confronted by what following Jesus might actually require of us. We're confronted with the reality that Christ calls us to join him in the brokenness of his body for the life of the world, to join him in a humility that will cost us everything. What a strange kingdom. What a strange king. How utterly strange that salvation comes by way of a cross and a savior that calls us to join him in dying to ourselves. In John's gospel account of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, he records Jesus saying, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This morning as we identify the Messiah and we cry out, God, save us, we recognize that we are a people in need of saving. And this salvation, this deliverance, must take us first to death. This is the strange manner in which God transforms This is also Paul's message to the church in Rome. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this is the thing that we anticipate this morning, new life. As Christ calls us to die to our old selves this morning, we anticipate that new work that he wants to do in us. We anticipate the growth of new fruit in the same way that the earth is coming back to life after a long winter. God is making all things new. The things that were once dead are on the verge of life. The hearts that were hard are being made soft. Like the potter with the clay, God is doing a new work and is calling all of his people to join him in this new creation. This morning, on Palm Sunday, God is calling us to a life of adventure. He's calling us to trust, to follow, to bear fruit, to be transformed. He's calling us to join him in the renewing of his creation. He's calling us to lose our lives that we may find our lives. This morning, maybe we learn to follow Jesus to the cross. Would you stand with me for our benediction this morning? Father God, this morning we come to you crying out, Hosanna, God, save us. Would you teach us as a church, as a community, as a people, what it is to bear fruit? Would you give us the 
the courage, the hope, the trust to follow you on this adventure that you're calling us to? Would you do a new work in our hearts? Would you stir up something new within us? We're desperate for a touch. We sense that your spirit is in this place, breathing new life into this people. Would we be transformed by you and following you to the cross? Would you give us the courage to die to our old selves today? To step into new life, the life that you're calling us into. We pray all these things by your spirit and in your name. Amen. Have you heard truth this morning? Amen. Is it good that we gather this morning? Amen. Uh, well, before you go, uh, remember that tonight we have Hosanna at 630. Uh, be sure to come back and join us in that celebration. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.